0: Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians, chapter 2. You can find it on page 949 in your Black Bibles. Before I read, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful extension of summer. Um, We thank you for bringing us here today for a new um, school year, a new Day to be together and to worship you. We ask that you um, use your words and use Pastor Jim's words to speak to us individually and um, together as a church, however you want us to hear your word. Amen. Amen. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in our way of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If uh, your Bible is not open uh, uh, to our passage today from Ephesians 2, let me encourage you to open it up uh, in the black Bibles, again, that you were given on your way in. It's on page 949. We're going to be taking a close look at this passage today. In case you're wondering, uh, Pastor Mike uh, was called on to serve one of our sister uh, congregations uh, in Wisconsin today, and so uh, he is off evaluating the sermon of a a new pastor in our region, uh, and uh, that is where he is. Hopefully he'll be joining us later for lunch. The highlight of my uh, week this past week was joining some of our students uh, at the UW uh, Student Org Fair to share about Geneva's Student Ministry on campus. Uh, this is the, the student organization fair that takes place every year uh, with hundreds of student groups in the Cole Center on both floors of the Cole Center, all the way around the arena, hundreds of these uh, student orgs. And, and it was a lot of fun just to be there with them and uh, to reach out. And as part of our interaction with the students, uh, we invited them to describe themselves spiritually. And we learned so much from uh, this, uh, this opportunity. There, there were, of course, uh, some students who described themselves in religious terms as, as Christians or committed to some other religious faith. Some of the answers uh, we received were silly. Uh, one student in response to the question, how would you describe yourself spiritually, said, I am a cat. Okay? Maybe that was serious, actually. But, but what really struck me were, was how many students shared in a really honest and revealing way uh, about this question. Over and over again, they said, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm agnostic. I'm confused. And to me, just uh, thinking of our ministry and our church and, and student ministry on this campus, these were really exciting responses Uh, Because the Christian message is for people just like this—it's for people who struggle, and who doubt, and who are searching. So, if—if that's you here today, uh, whether we met you at the student org fair or not, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, This fall at Geneva, we're we're studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and this letter is a great place to start if you're wrestling uh, with questions like these. It's one of the great summaries of the Christian faith, and it was written to help uh, young Christians and and churches to grow in what was for them a new faith. And and Paul, uh, the the author of this letter, has a very clear message that he wants to to get across to them. He repeats it twice in in the passage that we just heard. At the end of verse 5, he says, by grace you have been saved. And then he says it again in verse 8. By grace you have been saved. And it's clear, he's, he's supercharged about this message of grace. And we want to try and wrap our heads around it this morning. What, what is it about this message of grace that he proclaimed as being at the heart of the Christian faith that made him so excited? I think if we don't get this, we don't really get the Christian faith. And so let's see what we can learn today. There are three things that this passage teaches us. It teaches us about the necessity of grace in verses 1 to 3, the reality of grace in verses 4 to 7, and the sufficiency of grace in verses 8 to 10. So the necessity of grace, the reality of grace, and the sufficiency of grace. Let's look at each one of these. First, the necessity of grace. The the first few verses of Ephesians two, they say bluntly that there is something wrong in the world, dramatically wrong. Paul writes, "You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient." When I read these verses, the first thing I think about is the Netflix show, Stranger Things. But that may just be me. If, if you haven't seen it, the Stranger Things is about this group of kids in the mid-1980s who have stumbled across a science experiment that's gone horribly wrong. Some scientists have opened a door into another dimension, and this dimension replicates everything in our world, except that it's full of thick fog and darkness and frightening monsters. And they call this other world the Upside Down. And, and the monsters of the Upside Down have begun to infiltrate into our world. In, in the first season, a boy is lost to the Upside Down, and he has to be rescued. But by the end of the second season, it appears that our whole world needs rescue. The, the Upside Down in, in our normal reality are becoming more and more difficult to tell apart. Now, this is something like what Paul is is saying here. That the human condition, he's saying, is upside down. We're born into a world of brokenness and and sin where where things are not okay. In verse 3, Paul goes on to say that this broken reality is not just something out there, but it's also in each one of us. All of us he says. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. The, the, the word that's translated here uh, in the NRSV as passions, or in the NIV as cravings, is a, a really important word in the New Testament. It's uh, in Greek, epithumia. It's, that's two words in Greek, epi, which means over, and thumia, which means desire. And so literally it means something like over-desire. Passions of the flesh or, or cravings of the flesh, it sounds in English like something sensual, but over-desire, this epithumia, is not just about physical desires or, or desires for bad things. You can over-desire something bad, but you can also over-desire something good so that it becomes destructive. So a desire for food is a a good thing, but if you over-desire it, it becomes harmful. The same thing applies to all our other desires, whether they be for recognition or security or success or sex. When we over-desire something, it distorts how we relate to all things and, and to everyone else in our lives. It, it becomes an idol at the center of our lives. Donald Opitz and Derek Mellaby, in their book Learning for the Love of God, A Student's Guide to Academic Faithfulness, describe two different kinds of overdesire that they find among students. Although I think this applies to, to any stage of life. Uh, on the one hand, they describe students who come to college for what they call beer and circus. Uh, This includes drinking and and partying, but it's also something broader. It's about desiring freedom above all else. Uh, They they write a little creed for, for the beer and circus folks. It goes something like this. I am on my own, free of parental supervision and bogus limitations. I am here to make my own decisions about what I want to do and who I want to be. If you're not sure what this looks like, you know, just come down to State Street next Saturday night and you'll get a sense of beer in circuits. But on the other hand, is a mindset that Opitz and Meloby call grades and accolades. These are students who come to college ready to work hard, achieve great things, and get a good job. They, they believe that the reward comes to those who work hard. And on the outside, someone who desires grades, good grades, and, and recognition above all else may look better than someone who parties too hard, but can also drive you to constant anxiety and, and fear, fear about what others think about you, about how you're doing, whether you're measuring up. And it can push you to sacrifice your relationships and your health for the sake of that achievement. I was always much more of a grades and accolades uh, kind of student, and this worked for me for a long time, uh, until I was a graduate student here uh, in the mid-2000s, here at the UW in a PhD program, and I I failed one of my big comprehensive exams at at the end of of, uh, the major section and now, this, this wasn't that uncommon in my department. It happened uh, fairly regularly. The, the professors like to see people fail occasionally to bring them down a notch. And it just meant that I had to wait a semester and retake the exam to continue moving on. But in response, I was inordinately angry. I was despairing. I, I was devastated in a way that, that showed, really, that I had made an idol out of this pursuit of grades and, and accolades and success. You see how this over-desire can take both of these forms? Beer and circus or, or grades and accolades? Your desire can be for having fun and a good time, and that, and that can be really destructive. But your desire can also be for recognition and success, and that can be equally destructive to you. Both can make us what Paul calls children of wrath, like everyone else. Like everyone else. I I love this phrase uh, because when we see that this is true, it means that we don't have to pretend anymore. We can admit when things are messed up when the world is upside down, when when we're messed up and we're upside down. And we can be friends with other messed up people, no matter how different they might otherwise be from us. A British writer named Francis Spufford wrote a great book a few years ago about why he remains a Christian, despite the fact that the church so often gets such bad press. And uh, this book has one of uh, the best titles. The title is Unapologetic, why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. (laughs) Spufford writes about how the, the Christian doctrine that we're all sinners actually should make us the most humble people in the world. He writes this, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people and excluding the bad people for the simple reason that there aren't any good people not any that can be securely designated as such. It can't be about circling the wagons of virtue. This, I I realize, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of the church as something existing far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. Again, of course, there are Christians like that. The the, The religion can certainly slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world. But it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Sounds like a new uh, superpower group. The, The league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognize each other. Christianity wants us to know the look of sin when we see it in a mirror and to know it too when we see it in other people. Christians are supposed to understand that this family resemblance makes us family, even with the nastiest and most frightening of our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to do our fallible, failing best to perceive other bad people as kin. This is why grace is so necessary. We we all need it. So, let's come back to Ephesians. In verses 4-7, to Paul declares that this grace is not just something we need, but it's a reality that God has brought into the world. Here's a sentence worth meditating on. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, I'd like to invite you to, to go home today and just read that, meditate on that uh, this week, but consider a few things. Paul says that the, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just God proving that he can pull off a really stupendous miracle. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection is the story of the Christian life. If you're united to Jesus, you have died with Christ, and you have been made alive with Christ. Do you see what this means? Grace is at the bottom Whatever your bottom looks like. If God loved us, even when we were dead in sin, then there's no part of your life that grace cannot reach. There's no sin that cannot be forgiven. There's no person that cannot be redeemed. If you're unsure that the the creator of the universe would really love you this much, look again at at verses 5 and 6. Look at what Paul says God has done for you. First, he has made us alive together with Christ. Second, he has raised us up with him. You've been given new life, not just returned to your old life. Third, he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, being seated in the Bible is all about being seated on a throne to rule. If you are in Christ then everything that belongs to Jesus is yours. His life, his power, even his victory and his his spiritual authority belongs to you. So often when we struggle, I think it's because we fail to trust that God really loves us this much, that he really could be this lavish, this generous, this gracious, Earlier in our service, we sang an old song, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. It included these verses. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to know your need of him. All you need is need. So often we, we want to get better before we come to God. But grace isn't grace if you deserve it or you've earned it or you're the kind of person who should get it. This is why it was the, it was the prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors who were attracted to Jesus, not, not the religious people who thought they had it all together. The same is true today. The writer, Anne Lamott, tells uh, the story of how, as an alcoholic and an addict, she was drawn to a church. And she would be outside and she would hear them singing inside and she would just come in and sit at the back and just sit there. And she says that was the the powerful ministry of this church to her. They just let her sit there. And she came back. And, And here's what she writes. One week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs, and this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. Weeping and and joyful at the same time. That's a good summary of what we've been saying, that the message of the gospel brings. Weeping over the brokenness of the world, of ourselves, but joyful that God has been gracious. So we talked about the necessity of grace and and the reality of grace in the person and work of Christ. But finally, let's talk about the sufficiency of grace. In verses 8 and 9, Paul says that grace is not just something we encounter at the beginning of the Christian life, but it's meant to infuse everything we do. When you believe that you're saved by grace through faith, it, it changes everything. It takes away... All your boasting and it makes you truly humble. Uh, Verse 8 For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So here's a test for you of of whether you are really living by grace. What are you boasting in? What do you find yourself boasting in? Jesus once told a parable about two men who went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said it's the tax collector rather than the Pharisee who went away justified. He didn't boast in his own righteousness, but he asked God for mercy. This is the change that the gospel makes. It gives you a new center, a new orientation towards God as a a recipient of his mercy and his grace. Someone who believes this will not always have to go around proving themselves or comparing themselves to others in order to have a sense of self-worth. If you do that, you're really still just trusting in yourself. But if your faith is in Jesus, who went to the cross for you, you can know that you're loved deeply even when you've failed or you've been mistreated. What's more, a a love like this, a gracious, undeserved love, it motivates you to live in a way that pleases God, but from a place of gratitude rather than guilt. Ephesians 2.10, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We're not saved by good works, but for good works. Paul says we are what he has made us. In Greek, what he has made is is just one word. The word is poema. It's the word from which we get our word poem. He says we are God's poem, God's workmanship, God's masterpiece. He has a purpose for us in this great project to redeem and restore, and bring healing and wholeness to the whole world. If you believe that your good works are needed for God to love you, then your primary motivation will either be fear of judgment or or pride that compares yourself to others. But if you believe that God is truly kind, gracious, and loving towards you, you'll be motivated by gratitude, not by guilt if you're confident that God's grace is still for you, even when you're at your worst, then you won't serve because you have to. You serve because you want to. You you want to love others as you've been loved. You want to serve others as God in Christ has served you. You'll have a heart for the poor and the weak because you know that God loved you when you were poor and weak. Let me end with this. The movie, The The Shawshank Redemption, uh, tells the story of a man, Andy Dufresne, who's falsely convicted of murdering his wife. He's sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at uh, Shawshank State Penitentiary where he's abused by both the guards and the other inmates. And he goes on to spend 19 years digging a tunnel out of his cell with a a little rock hammer. And uh, the movie includes one of the greatest uh, prison escape sequences, of all time. Uh, one night, on the, on the night that he escapes, uh, during a thunderstorm, he, he breaks into a sewage pipe and uh, he begins to crawl through it, naked, through the sewage pipe, out under the walls of the prison to the other side. And finally, he, he emerges on the outside where he's washed clean in the pouring rain. It's a beautiful picture of, of what Christ has done for us. This grace that we've been talking about is not uh, an abstract idea. It's a person. In his incarnation and, and crucifixion, Jesus entered into the mess of our brokenness and sin. He was stripped naked. He was abused and killed, even though he was innocent. But through his death and resurrection he opened a door to new life and he invites you and me to follow him through it. Friends, this is what God's love looks like. It's a self-sacrificial suffering love. A love that comes to us at our worst moments, at the bottom, even in death, to make us alive with Christ. To raise us up with Christ, to seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. This love is for you and for me today. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the, the greatness of your grace that you have revealed uh, in Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see all that you have accomplished in him, uh, that we would be able to respond uh, to you in song, with both sorrow and joy. Uh, sorrow over how this world is, is so far from what you intended. It can be so broken and destructive in so many ways. And yet, at how great and, uh, and, and joyful it is to think about how you have loved it. You have not turned your back on your broken creation, but you have moved towards it. You have moved towards us in your grace and your love. We give you thanks and praise for this, and we pray uh, that we might respond in gratitude and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.